Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing with Sally Kuzumchak all about choosy eaters, food media, fear mongering, and her successful Real Mom Nutrition blog. But first, let's catch up. Nicole, what's new? Oh, well, by the time this comes out, the variety show will be done. (laughs) Woo! Yeah, Gina, lesson learned. Um, What else will be done? Uh, That's the biggest stressor right now. Yeah. There was something else. Oh, yeah, that's about it. I pulled. um, Do you remember what this was May of 2020? It was COVID. I was out at the high school tennis courts playing tennis with some guys I play hockey with. Um, and I ripped my calf muscle. Do you remember this? I've, I rare, I very rare, very, oh my gosh, barely remember it, but I do vaguely remember it. Yes. Well, I did it again. Um, not as bad this time, but every time I tell people it's not ice hockey, I get hurt playing. It is tennis. (laughs) I, I just find it so ironic because tennis is the sport that people are like, you can play it your whole life. Like it's a great, uh, no. So I, I'm because I do this drill thing and the 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 guy we were doing like flying up to the net to grab a drop shot. First step, er, like immediate mm-hmm. pain. You just feel your calf like stretch and almost pop. And I, it, it was it was bad. I hobbled off the court and I can bear weight, but it's just not good. So oh. I know I was doing so well preventing injuries, too. I'm just I'm not a good Exercise is just my therapy. So I, when I get like this, I just get so crotchety and yeah. unpleasant. So, yeah. I, yeah. Can't, I can't understand how people say that tennis is something you can play your whole life. You have to be fast, agile. I mean, it's it's an intense sport. Yes. At some point, you stop moving. I, I play with some older ladies. And I mean, they are out there and they've got a serve and a backhand that puts mine to shame. But if they've got to run for a ball, they're like, no. So I'm like the ball girl and yeah. like the getter of the like any shot that's like out of reach. Sometimes I think they actually hit it to each other just so that they can keep it going <laughs> rather than win the point because none, none of them are going to run for it. It's kind of funny. That is funny. Well, in that case, you could probably play your whole life. Yes. If you've got a, a ball runner and a, a getter <laughs> of all the, the difficult shots. That's funny. I know. <laughs> Yeah, but otherwise not a whole lot going on. Just waiting for spring. What about you guys? Oh my gosh, ditto. I, ever since coming back from Disney, all I can think about is what our next vacation is. I think I already said this in the last episode, but I've just been planning little mini trips for the summer, for the spring. And then even looking into 2023, I got together four other families, no, three other families. And we're planning a trip to the Outer Banks in June of 23 because they're all booked right now. I know. But you have to book it now. I mean, you have to book it at like an, a year in advance to get what you want, right? So we already found the house that we want and we're going to start booking. I think I think we can start booking in May, perhaps. So yes, that's I'm excited about that. Looking ahead, that's what I do. And then I just wanted to sort of mention something that has been a goal for mine for this this year, for sure, a wellness goal was to go on more dates with Nick. And I think I did mention this already, but I read recently that the best thing to do with your spouse 
is or your partner is to do not just dates, but experiences. So to experience things with them, you know, and what I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, going on a vacation or a weekend getaway, or even something as simple as going to get a couple's massage or doing a cooking class. So I've really been researching things around Columbus that we can do, you know, this summer, or this spring. So I'm, you know, sort of working on that recently to sort of get us involved in more experiences. And then I really love this. I had Terry Manrique. We did another one of our marriage coaching sessions this week and she used the term leaning in. And I just, it's really resonated with me. You know, she said, you know, Gina, Nick, you need to start leaning into each other. And so every time I feel a little bit off with Nick, usually what I do is kind of go into a hole and I just like go upstairs, read a book and just ignore him. But instead, I'm really resonating with this term leaning in and I'm just being more communicative with him and telling him how I feel and leaning into his discomfort and asking him what's going on and having conversations and trying to mend things before going upstairs and just ignoring it. So I just wanted to to, to bring that up because maybe it'll resonate with others. So yeah, timely coming out of our last episode when we talked about intimacy. Exactly. Yes. And part of that is being intimate, you know, leaning in. Like I will give you an example. Actually, yesterday, the kids, it was Friday night and they always have a movie night on Friday. And generally after the movie, we don't put them to bed. We just say, okay, go to bed. You know, you're done. It's late. We're not reading you a book. It's done. But they got really wound up and quite frankly, annoying. And Nick was not having it. I mean, it just put him in the worst mood. And he pretty much said like, this is ruining my night. And before I would have gotten super annoyed by it, which I kind of did. I'm just like, you can't let this ruin your night. We, we just need to rein them in and put them to bed and go enjoy the rest of our evening. But instead he kind of just got angry and sad and mad and just kind of I don't know, walked away and went into his his cave. But instead of getting angry about it, I I took what Terry suggested and leaned in and asked him what I could do to make things better. I I put the kids to bed. When I say that, I meant I literally snuggled with them for five, maybe five minutes total and then turned off their lights. And then he came upstairs and I leaned in in other ways. And let me just tell you, we woke up this morning and we were both happy. In the past... We would have gone to bed. I would have been annoyed with him for being annoyed and for ruining the night by, you know, being annoyed. And it wouldn't have been a good morning. So I leaned in and I think it helped. So that was I mean, just last one example. Episode and today we've got a lot of uh, different little terms for, you know. <laughs> yeah. Leaning in. <laughs> Leaning in. Wink, wink. It doesn't <laughs> always have to mean that. But in this case last night, perhaps it did. Okay. All right. So before we begin, just a quick favor to ask, since you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us. And of course, they help us reach more people. So of course, we'd appreciate it very much. All right. Just a little introduction to the topic today. Our interview with Sally Kuzumchak. She's a dietitian and the author who blogs at Real Mom Nutrition. It's a no judgment zone about feeding a family. She's the author of the 101 Healthiest Foods for Kids, and Cooking Like Dinnertime Survival Guide. It has more than 20 years of experience writing about nutrition for magazines such as Prevention, Fitness, Health, and Family Circle. She's 
currently a contributor to WebMD and served as an advisor and contributing editor for Parents Magazine. So now we're going to welcome Sally to our podcast. Hey, well, welcome to the podcast, Sally. We're so excited to have you here. Just tell our listeners a little bit about you and, of course, your blog. Sure. So I am a registered dietitian. I am a mom. I have two boys. They are now, I can't believe it, they are now 13 and 17. Um, And my blog is Real Mom Nutrition, which is a no-judgment zone about feeding a family. And I started that back in about 2009 because I was a relatively new mom and I looked around and I felt like everybody was sort of telling a glossier, nicer version of how feeding kids really was. And I wanted to tell the truth and give the good sides and the bad sides and share my successes as well as um, my stumbling blocks and wanted people to feel like there was a safe place to go. So um, that's what my blog is all about. I also do a little bit of writing and reporting about nutrition for magazines and websites. Awesome. Thank you. I love that. What, Sally, would you say is your nutrition philosophy? So I feel like this has changed, and I'm sure for you guys it's changed over the years as well. But I think right now, I think my nutrition philosophy is prioritizing a healthy relationship with food. I feel like that just having, you know, having lived through, you know, a lot of decades of worrying about what I ate and kind of buying into diet culture and all of that, and then having children and feeling like I needed to instill a really positive relationship for them with food. So I feel like that's sort of number one, Um, you know, trusting your appetite, eating when you're hungry, um, and then finding a balance that feels good to your body. You know, I feel like that's different for everyone. The longer that I'm a dietitian, the longer or the more I realize different things work for different people. And we all sort of have to find what works for us. And I see that with my kids, too, with this idea of balance. So, you know, uh, I remember my older son going to summer camp and they had, you know, free reign to whatever they wanted in the dining hall. And he said, you know, after a few days of, you know, drinking soda three meals a day or whatever, like... I really just wanted water and I I wanted a big salad and I want to, you know, and I feel like it's interesting to watch them sort of have their own balance. And I feel like I, I'm, I'm that way too. And so I feel like honoring that balance, prioritizing that healthy relationship with food, um, trusting your appetite. Those are sort of, I'd say the pillars of my philosophy at the moment. Yes. I, yes, preach. We, I think we are nodding our heads in agreement with everything that you just said. As I and you know, here's the thing. I think that when we were going to school, that wasn't really a hot topic. You know, listening to your body and um, trusting your body. It was so much more about counting calories and looking yeah. at nutrition labels. <laughs> and yes. uh, I would just love to go through the curriculum all over again in hopes that maybe it has changed a little bit, and perhaps we can be a part of that change. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's- All right. So Sally, we've known each other for quite a while now, and I've always appreciated your candid approach to nutrition and education. And of course, the dismissal of all the fear mongering out there. Your blog educates consumers on the reality of food and how to ignore what marketers want you to believe, or these days, what journalists write for clickbait. So what are some foods we've been taught to fear, but whose fears you have debunked? And I know there's a lot, but maybe some, what are your, your top 
I don't know, three to five, whatever number you want to choose, or just specific blog posts that you'd like to highlight because you've done so many great debunking of just, I can just, the one I think about on top of my head is, is serial. Uh, so you just do such a great job with that. And your writing is always just on par, understandable. So what are some things you want to highlight? One of my more popular posts is actually about MSG. And I'm glad uh, people find it through typing in, is MSG bad for me? And, um, you know, with, with anything, as I, as I sort of said in my nutrition philosophy answer, you know, I feel like, you, you know, everybody needs to figure out what works for them and what doesn't. So for instance, I have a really severe digestive reaction to coconut oil, but I'm not going to go out there preaching that coconut oil is poisonous and toxic and nobody should eat it just because that's what it does to me. And I feel that way about MSG. Some people say they have reactions to MSG. And if you feel bad after you eat something, well, for goodness sakes, don't, don't eat that you know, food or ingredient. But I think it's really important for people to know the background so they can make the decision for themselves. That's just sort of a main thing on my blog is like, here are the facts. You go make the decision because I'm not going to tell you what to eat and how much to eat. That's up to you. So with MSG, you know, it's, it's really fascinating that the whole thing started with a letter, not a study, you know, a letter published in a journal in 1968 by a doctor who said, you know, he claimed he had flushing of the skin and heart palpitations when he ate at a Chinese restaurant. And the journal dubbed this Chinese restaurant syndrome. And it just became a thing. I mean, literally from a letter. And we know as dietitians, like a letter is not the same thing in a journal as a study, a research study. And so this was just sort of taken as fact. And, um, you know, really there was probably some anti-Chinese sentiment behind that too. You know, Chinese immigrants were opening restaurants and it was just sort of a way to other them. You know, and even Anthony Bourdain once famously said, um, what causes Chinese restaurant syndrome is racism. So I think it's really important to kind of go back and like, well, where did this start? Like, is this true? Um, and so, you know, they've researched MSG since then and found that there is, an, in fact, no cause and effect relationship with headaches. So um, I think that's an important one to just not take as fact. And OK, how did this start? And do I really feel bad after I eat it or, you know, have I just been sort of convinced by the media? Um, I think non-organic produce is another one that has a lot of fear and misinformation around it. Um, you know, thanks to Environmental Working Group with their Dirty Dozen list. Um, you know, and the, the fact is that the presence of a residue on an apple does not mean that that apple is harmful or dangerous to you. And I think um, that has been you know, taken as fact that if there's a residue on anything, then it's toxic and harmful. And, um, you know, even the environmental working group says eating produce is way more important than whether it is organic or non-organic. But now we have this, you know, this fear and people don't know what to choose in the grocery store. And there's actually research showing that this can cause some people to not buy produce because they're standing there like, I don't know. And I've heard this and I've heard that. And, um, and so that's that's really harmful, you know, when people are not buying an apple because of what they have heard um, and some misinformation that they have. So, yeah, I love I love debunk debunking things. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I I also just love just presenting the facts and like, here you go, make your own decision. But you need to know if you're going to make this a decision, make sure you have the right facts. Yes. Uh, OK, so. 
There's one other one that I was just thinking of that you did, and it was the baby carrots. You know, everyone is, I don't know, I've heard crazy things about baby carrots that they're cut in a factory and they're doused with chemicals and that white stuff that that happens to the form on them after about a week in your fridge. It's it's all the chemicals coming out. But then you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you posted something about how it's really just they're drying out. (laughs) Like it's as simple as that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've heard that, you know, the white stuff is bleach. And I don't know, like, I guess people think they soak them in bleach and they do use a chlorine solution um, to rinse off um, fruits and vegetables when they're processing them. But it's the what I have read is that the amount of chlorine in that solution is comparable to what we have in our tap water. And yeah, when the baby carrots get white, they're dried out and try it next time, like throw your white baby carrots in some cold water and let them sit there and they will spring right back to life. So (laughs) Yeah. And they are carrots. I mean, I've heard like baby carrots aren't real carrots. Like, yeah, they're they're real carrots. They're, yeah. you know, they're grown to be, you know, to be baby carrots. But yeah, they're carrots. That's, that's so funny. All right. So how does all this fear mongering in the media affect us as parents and especially our kids? So, you know, it really instills this, this unnecessary fear um, in our kids and in us. And, and especially with kids, I think it can be really confusing that, you know, like this apple is safe, but this apple is, you know, toxic and dangerous. Or these mm-hmm. these potato chips, because they're labeled organic, these are healthy, but, you know, these regular potato chips are dangerous for me. And that is extremely confusing for children. Um, and children may, you know, they may feel shame or or fear that they like these foods that they're not supposed to like, or what's the difference between these two apples, organic and non-organic. And you know, I feel like it brings up a lot of guilt and fear when shopping. You know, I've, I've heard from moms who have said, you know, I'm afraid to buy produce or um, I drive an extra however many miles to get organic or I spend beyond my means for organic. Like, I really can't afford this. But, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to trash organic because I buy some organic food, too. But, you know, there when these there are these hard and fast labels and rules around food, I think that can be really um, unfair to people on, you know, it's sort of needless worry in a lot of cases. And, um, I just hate that people are afraid in the grocery store or, and I used to be that way too, just sort of standing there paralyzed with like, well, what should I do? Because this item's $3 more. And if I do that for every single item I buy, I'm not going to be able to afford my cart at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it just, it creates a lot of hysteria. And as you said at the beginning, the clickbait. And that is a real problem um, with online articles. Everybody wants the click. And so if your headline is is extreme, then you're going to get the clicks. And, you know, and I, I think reading past the headline is really important too, because as, as a writer and, you know, writers, anybody who has written online or in print knows that you are often not writing the headline, your editors or someone else is writing the headline. And Sometimes I'll see a story I wrote and be like, wait, what? What <laughs> What does this headline say? But then you have to read past that and you have to read the story itself and make sure it's from a reputable you know, person. There's so much online. Anybody can post something online saying, you know, broccoli is toxic. Never eat broccoli again. And you have to look, who are, you know, who is this person and why are they saying that? And what are they citing? Are they actually citing research or you know, it's just, it, you have to be sort of a savvier consumer now with, with all of the information, especially online. Yeah. I, I feel like that was one of the most important things I learned, even as a child in elementary school, to make sure that you're researching uh, 
everything that you're reading. I mean, if there's a if there's a statement that's made in a book, a research book, if you're researching sharks, go back and see where it came from. See if it's actually fact. And I remember they really, really where I where I went to school, they they taught us that really well. And I think that's helped me ever since then. I mean, it's just been such helpful education that I that I received even in elementary school because I'm still using that to make sure that I'm always reading between the lines, especially when it comes to nutrition information. Yeah, it's, it's critical thinking. And, and you know, we're missing a lot of that right now, but it, it's important to approach, especially this information when it's directly tied to your health or what you're going to buy at the store, what you're going to eat, put in your body. It's just, it's really important to be a critical thinker when evaluating all of this information. Yeah, especially with social media. I mean, it just, it's made it exponentially yeah. worse, I feel like. All right. So let's move to feeding kids. I read a recent blog post of yours about when your now teenager was little and he went on a food strike. Uh, You mentioned using some of Ellen Satter's strategies to get over that difficult feeding time. Can you tell us uh, what worked? Sure. Well, the strategies were sort of a combination of different things. And we were already using the division of responsibility um, with both kids where, you know, we decide what is served and when, and they decide whether they eat it and, and how much. So we were already using you know, her strategies, but my, um, my younger son, he was eating barely anything. He was eating like a lick of ketchup or, you know, one bite of something. And, and it really, you know, was really worried me. And it just really frustrated me, especially when I knew it was something that he liked. And of course, this is very common that, you know, kids, especially in the, the toddler age are going to go on a dinner strike. Um, but at the time it was just really aggravating. So, I consulted a friend of mine. Um, she wrote the book, It's Not About the Broccoli. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Dina Rose, she's actually a PhD soci- sociologist. So she approaches uh, feeding from for sort of that lens versus the nitty gritty nutrition lens. So um, we kind of worked together and tried a few things. She knew how frustrated I was. So one of the things that we did was just putting very, very small amounts of food on his plate. So just a couple bites of something. And when we first started doing this, he would just look at me like, is this all you're going to give me? You know, <laughs> and um, and it really was effective. I think maybe the big plate of food um, was intimidating to him. And at the time I was I was plating their own foods. I wasn't really doing family style yet. Um, and I think just coming to the table and having all this food in front of him was just a little bit too much, but just having a couple bites was like, oh, okay. And then he would eat, he would eat a couple bites and I'd say, well, you know, you can have more if you have a couple of bites. So that, that really was surprisingly effective. We really had to take a look at the snacking. And I know that every parent goes through this where they're like, oh my gosh, my kid just wants to snack, uh, won't eat meals, or my kid is snacking before dinner. I'm, I'm scrambling to make dinner and my kid is snacking and I know then they're not going to be hungry for dinner. So we had to really take a good hard look at that and sort of put some put some parameters in place there. Um, and then one of the things we were doing, which I think is really common, is we were doing, we, we're calling it a no thank you bite. And, um, and it worked fine for my older son. And then my younger son came along and anyone with two knows that like, you know nothing, you know, if you think you know it all after your first and then your second comes along and you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm starting from square one. And the, you know, the one bite, you know, take one bite that completely backfired on him. So we started calling it a no, no thank you bite. And um, Dr. Rose was like, well, when you call it a no thank you bite, you're sort of setting it up that he's not going to want it. You know, it's a, it's a pretty bad label, actually, when you come to think of it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I never, never thought of that before. And so we, we sort of dropped that. and. Um, 
you know, let the kids decide whether they wanted to taste something or not. Um, so all of these sort of things combined and, um, and sort of just having patience and knowing that it would pass and it eventually did kind of got us through that period. Um, but you know, that, that stress is real when your kid is not eating. I think as a mom, it's your just, it's just baked in that, that you are going to feed and provide for your child. And when they're not when they're not eating enough that you think is enough, you know, you panic and you feel like you have to scramble to fix it. And so that that fear and struggle is real. But I wanted to share that sort of in hindsight now, you know, many years later, like, yeah, this was this was a bad phase, but this phase did pass <laughs> and made way for other phases. And my kid was OK. He was OK eating, you know, a lick of ketchup or whatever for a few weeks, a few months, you know, He's healthy and happy today, and it didn't didn't affect him long term. So, I thought that was important to get out. Definitely, that that's helpful. I'm I'm listening. That's that's actually I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of skip over Nicole's question, and you're gonna ask this after this because I feel like it jumps right into the next question I have. I'm sorry, Nicole, but that's okay. That's that's a question I think a lot of us have. You know, Paige, she's seven. I feel like she's just become more choosy with age, and. I, I don't know if it has to do with school or not, or if it's just her age or if it's what, something that I'm doing. But did you ever notice that as they got older, your kids got more choosy? And um, I, what do you think it is about this age? For her, it's seven. But also, even for Cameron, it's eight, at age five. Like I feel like they were really, really good eaters, but then they've just gotten progressively choosier. And then I feel less and less inclined to make something good for dinner or make a you know, make a, a meal that will take me time, 30 to, minutes to an hour, and then putting it in front of them when they just won't even eat it. And I don't make them take a bite either. I don't, that is not a rule in our house. But oh, sometimes I, I wish they would just try it. They might like it. But even when they do try it, they generally don't eat it. So is there hope? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, I, I've ex- I hear you. I, I have experienced this exact thing. And I have never found any kind of research that shows, you know, picky eating, you know, maybe it's out there, the picky eating sort of waxes and wanes at different parts of in, of childhood. I have heard that you know, I think anecdotally, it often fades in grade school or later grade school. Um, I do feel like there's some sort of weird peer pressure that kids get at, not peer pressure, but it's sort of, I don't know if the marketing is hitting them more or, you know, it's the exposure to, to friends. And, and as they get a little bit older, they have, they're more independent in what they're eating and choosing. And once they get their own money, they can buy their own food. And so definitely my older son um, eats far fewer fruits and vegetables than he did when he was even five. And I don't know what happened, you know, because I continued to serve those things. I hope that he comes back around and I do have hope that, that he will. He's already sort of, as he's getting, you know, to be, gosh, you know, a college student here pretty soon. I do think he is starting to get more open to trying those things. I think as they go through puberty and their appetites increase, I saw this, um, a lot of that picky eating fell to the wayside with my kids because they were just hungry. I remember one night I made something that I knew my older son just wasn't crazy about and he ate everything on his plate. And I said, um, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that because I didn't think that you loved that recipe. He was like, well, I don't, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> and so I, and I think that's, 
that's the case. It's like they, they're, they're starving. They sit down, you know, cause their appetites are, you know, that puberty appetite is really nuts. Um, and so they'll sit down and just be really hungry and, and eat, you know, what's on the plate. So, I mean, I, I totally feel you. And I think you said something really important, which I know I fell into as well, which is you get to this point where your kids are being more difficult with eating. And so you stop serving those foods. And so you just sort of like, you know what, what's the point of cutting up this pepper when I know no one's going to eat it or whatever it is. And so I, and I think that's what you meant. And I definitely went through that too, is like, well, why should I bother? Mm-hmm. And at some point I'm like, wait a second, I'm doing the exact opposite of what I'm always telling people to do, which is keep serving those foods, you know, keep trying because you don't, you know, it's that, you know, as we know, it's that exposure and familiarity and, um, you know, when kids are more comfortable and familiar with something, they're more likely to try it. So I think, you know, at some point it sort of turned around for me where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and serve these things. Even if I'm like 99% convinced they're not going to eat it, I'm still going to serve it. And I, as they get older, I am more and more surprised by the, the fact that they'll eat it and try it. And I think if then I could just keep serving it and then it becomes a comfortable, familiar food. So hang in there. I, I know exactly what you're going through. I don't know if there's any science around it. Um, <laughs> But I do think that it gets better in the puberty years and beyond. Not for everyone. Of course, we know that some kids are going to be, you know, the extreme picky eater and and can go into adulthood with that. And so I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's magic for everybody, but that's what what I've experienced. Yeah. Nicole and I have talked a lot about uh, about the idea. Well, first of all, Nicole's mom, I know, isn't this the quote she always says, food tastes better when you're hungry? Yep, exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> And it, we have talked about over the past few years, at least I think Nicole did this and I'm actually starting to do it, pushing dinner back. We always eat dinner so early and then my kids don't eat. But actually the other day we pushed dinner till 630 and I made meatloaf, which I know that's so random, but my kids, I think like meatloaf and actually I love it too. They downed it. And I'm like, is it because they love meatloaf or is it because it's 630 or is it a combination mm-hmm. of both? So I think just having them actually be hungry, obviously, it seems like such an obvious thing it really did make a difference. So, yeah. Yeah. And then they remember, you know, that's sort of a food memory. Like, gosh, I was so hungry and I came to the table and I ate that meatloaf and it tasted so good and it filled me up. And I think then that creates a positive association. So the more you can do that um, with all kinds of foods, I think the better off you'll be. Yeah. My takeaway from what you just said, Sally, is we have to have as parents, caregivers, we have to have tenacity in the kitchen. We have to yes. keep trying and not give up and and that persistence will pay off if nothing else from from exposure. I mean, my kids last night we were with another family and I said, you know, Shay, my oldest who's 7, you know, she's had broccoli this week. We were talking about she said, "I don't like any vegetables." And I she goes, "What vegetables do does Shay like?" And I I listed just some ones that we had had this week. And in disbelief, she said, "She didn't eat those." And Shay spoke up and she's like, "Yeah, I did." And the little girl was like, Oh, <laughs> am I supposed to do that too? It was it was just an interesting like mom dietitian moment. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, all, I love this. Um, so Sally, you have a lots of great articles on choosy eaters, all the way from little little ones to teenagers. Do you think choosy or picky eaters are born that way, or do we as parents create them? And I know tons of people have this question. Yeah, so we know that. Kids are born with different preferences. We know that some people have 
a more sensitive radar to bitter flavors, for instance. And, you know, broccoli, for instance, you know, it can taste bitter. So if you have that um, sensitivity to, to bitter, you're not going to like broccoli the way somebody else might. We also know that kids are born with different temperaments. And just as that uh, an easy, quote unquote, temperament will be easier at the table. And, you know, that's just that's just sort of a fact. Um but I think that there are some things that we can do to influence that, you know, and, and we can have, like I said, with when you have two kids, you, you often see this, you know, with lots of different things. You can have one kid that loves, um, you know, loves swimming right away and one kid who hates it or, you know, whatever. There's a million different things where you can see the differences in your kid. Um, you know, I was and I've written about this. I was an extreme picky eater as a child. My brother, on the other hand, raised in the exact same house with the exact same parents ate everything and still to this day eats everything, cleaned his plate no matter what was on it. And I sat there with my plain buttered noodles every night. And and so, you know, there is just a, you know, a good example of of two kids in the same family who are very different. So I do think that some of it, some of it is we're born with. But I do think that as parents, uh, there are some things that we can do to make it worse. And and I say this um, with compassion because I've pretty much done everything on the list. Um, that I think can kind of make these, you know, picky tendencies worse or make it seem like our kids are really picky eaters. I think sometimes people are quick to label their kids as picky eaters. And then when you look at it, you're like, wait a second, you know, so for instance, talking about coming to the table hungry or not. So, you know, if Gina was serving dinner at five and our kids had just had a big snack at four, they might come to the table and not be hungry. And then it's like, well, they're so picky. They're not eating what I make. And not saying, Gina, that that's, that's what you do. But just as an example, you know, of, of what might happen. Or, you know, a kid snacking all day or drinking a lot of milk. You know, I have a milk drinker who would just drink milk all day. But milk can fill up your belly. And then there's not room for food. And they come to the table and they're not eating the dinner. And it's like, oh, my kids are so picky. It's like, well, it's because they're actually not hungry. Um and when you're not hungry, you're you're not going to want to eat, and it's going to seem like you're picky. So I do think that you know you there's there's a difference among kids in in picky behaviors or not. But I do think there are things that we can do to make it to make it better or worse. I do I do think that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've lost track on questions because we we moved around. Am I up next, Gina? <laughs> Yeah, well, I think we just want to wrap it up. So we've said all this information and I don't want to continue to beat this idea, but this is your, this is, I think your area of expertise, Sally. So what are just your top three tips? Uh, If you had three tips to give our listeners before ending this episode, what would they be if you, you know, maybe to, to help to aid choosy eaters and to help them maybe develop taste for other foods? I think number one is just make one meal and start this as early as you can. Um, and I say this as someone who had a special meal made for her as a kid. My mom would make me a different thing whenever I didn't want to eat what she made, which was pretty much every night. But I, when I had my kids, I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I do think it's important. And of course, there are going to be kids who you can't do this for. Um, but for most kids, make one meal and you can deconstruct it. You can serve it in different ways, but don't be a short order cook and start that as early as possible. Uh, I think number two, uh, instilling this idea as early as possible of every meal can't be your favorite. My kids are so sick of hearing me say this, but it's really important for me that they understand this, that you may come to the table and it may be your favorite thing, 
Then the next night you come to the table and it's not, but maybe it's mom's favorite thing or your brother's favorite thing. And I think having respect for other people's favorites and preferences, making do with meals that are not your very favorite, this is going to happen in life. You go to a friend's house, you go to a business dinner when you're a grown up. whatever it is, you're going to appear at a dinner <laughs> and it's not going to be your favorite and you're going to have to roll with it. Mm-hmm. And then I think number three is just for parents to think of that long-term food relationship, not that short-term gain, not the vitamin C they're going to get in that bite of vegetables, but the long-term relationship your child is going to have with that food. And I know it's really hard in that moment, but if you can sort of pull back from that frustrated you know, moment in time and be like, wait a second, what kind of relationship do I want my kids to have with broccoli or whatever it is? Do I want them to feel forced to take three more bites before they get down? Or do I eventually want them to come to the table and be like, oh, broccoli, great, roasted broccoli with Parmesan. I love that. You know, whatever it is, that's what you want to focus on, not that short term, whatever vitamins are going to get in that small bite of food. Oh my gosh. And I feel like you can use that advice for just about everything in parenthood. I was just having a conversation with my kids about which extracurricular activities they would do over the summer. And they're just like, no, no, no. And and I'm thinking to myself, they have to do at least two things. They have to do this. (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) And I'm just pushing it and they're they're just getting annoyed. So I'm going to use that exact tip that you had with food for everything in my life. Because I think it really, (laughs) really coincides with just about everything that you do as a parent. So that's true. I need to follow my own advice with that too, because I'm always pushing the extracurriculars. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, but really, what is the big deal? It's just, it's not. Mm-hmm. You just see all these things again on social media. All yes. these other kids are doing this, this, and this. So my kids must do it too. Ah. Exactly. Man. Okay. So let's talk packed lunches real quick. So I, for me, I know, and I know that Nicole goes through this too. This is another area, and we've seen this on your site where you have a lot of great tips. And we've talked about it on our podcast. We've done entire episodes, but as our kids get older, things change. So I'm trying to use Ellen Satter's, again, strategies, like you mentioned, of we pick the what and the when, and then they decide the weather. But here's my issue. So Paige, now seven, she wants to control, she wants to have the control over what goes on her lunch. And I do respect that. I, I do find, though, that she packs a lot of really unbalanced foods. So again, going back to those strategies, we pick the what and the when, I've kind of lost control over the what when it comes to her lunch, but I want her to have that autonomy to pack her own lunch. So I guess, what are your tips for if your child wants to start packing their own lunch and not pushing that health agenda too much? And Nicole, we haven't actually had an episode about packing lunches for quite some time. So I'm not sure if you're going through this too, Nicole, where Shay wants to pack her own lunch. But this kind of just started about three months ago where all of a sudden Paige, Paige wants that control. And it's been really, really hard for me. So I guess, what tips do you have for just packing balanced lunches if your child is okay with you packing it? And then what tips do you have for if your child wants to start taking over packing their own lunches? Well, I am a big proponent of kids packing their own lunches. And this is something I did not do early enough. If I could turn back the hands of time, I would have my kids packing their own lunches much earlier than I did. I think when I started, they were like maybe like fifth and eighth grade or something like that. I can't remember, but I remember thinking at the time, oh my gosh, why haven't I been doing this for <laughs> many more years than I have? So bravo for, you know, and I guess Paige is, is driving that train, which good for her to yeah. want to pack her own lunch. I think it's just so important. And, and, you know, so many parents, especially moms, because that job often falls to moms, like they just dread packing the lunches. Like I just made dinner and now I have to pack the lunches or whatever it is. So 
yay for independent lunchbackers. So, and and I don't know what Ellen Satter would think about the way I handle this. And I I don't follow her stuff to the T. I will say that. I mean, I, I really like a lot of what she says, but I'm I'm not a, you know, I'm not a diehard. And, you know, people may say, well, you're not following the division of responsibility with this. But when my kids first started packing their lunches, I sort of gave them a formula, sort of a matrix and said, you know, here are, here's what I think um, will help you pack a balanced lunch, but you can choose from in those categories, whatever, whatever you want. And actually on my site, I do have a free printable that people can um, download and print and then fill in. So, you know, for instance, like a vegetable, a fruit, a grain, a protein, and we're sort of talking about like, you know, these foods, certain foods will help keep you full and you want to eat your lunch and then be able to focus on your work or if you, you know, are, are doing something after school and, you know, this is more filling than this. And I think that to me, I feel like you can have those messages with kids without being overly like, this is lower in calories. You know, it doesn't have to be this sort of diet culture message. It can be like, these foods will do this for you. Um, so kind of using that, um, and one of my kids was kind of better than the other at sort of following this matrix. And to this day, my younger son still packs a fruit and vegetable in his lunch every day. And he's just like, sometimes he'll be, and he's in eighth grade, and he'll be like, Mom, you know, what vegetables do we have? Like, he just sticks to it. It's just in his head is like, well, I have a vegetable in my lunch every day. My older son, not as much. Um, but I do think that it's okay to have that sort of formula and then go through your fridge and, and, and pantry and be like, okay, what foods kind of fit into each of these categories. And if you don't like what we have, let's go to the store and let's buy some vegetables that you might like to take um, in your lunch. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, especially with vegetables in the lunchbox, I think, you know, starting off really small and just putting a couple of baby carrots in there, whatever vegetable that they like. You know, I think some people will be like, well, my, I put a, you know, I put a bunch of baby carrots in my kid's lunch and they didn't eat them. And it's like, well, because there were like 15 baby carrots there. Maybe if you had two, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, having just a couple bites on your plate, I think is more manageable. So um, I know that when people hear vegetables, they're like, my kid's never going to eat vegetables or never pack vegetables in their lunchbox. And I don't necessarily think that's true. So that was that was my approach. Um, like I said, it, it really stuck with my one kid. Didn't stick as much with my other. But um, I think when you're in that place of, you know, your kid's packing you know, a bagel, potato chips, crackers, and a cookie or whatever in your lunch yep. and looking at it like, uh, you know, <laughs> I think that that can be helpful. Um, just kind of pulling in that, that matrix and being like, okay, let's think about, you know, it's okay, but let's think about some other foods that might fill up your belly a little bit more for the afternoon. That's exactly what Paige would pack. I mean, it's like an uncrustable, a, uh, some type of a granola bar, um, I don't know, a dessert. I just, yeah. and I, I don't want to say that's too many carbs because that sounds right. so diety. And, but right. instead I, I do kind of take your approach. You know, you've got all grains here. What kind of, you know, dairy or fruits or vegetables or protein. Uh, so we'll have to put a link to that, that freebie um, PDF from your website in our show yeah. notes. And we'll do that. Sometimes Shay will say, why, why do I have to do that? And I, I don't, I try not to do healthy or I say it's my job as your mother to make sure that you try different foods. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of take it, What do you think? You be honest. I, it doesn't, it won't offend me. Do you think that's a okay approach? 
I mean, I think it's it's fine to say, I mean, you know, I, I'm not like the end all be all expert. So everybody needs to do what they what they feel comfortable with. But I think, you know, expressing to kids that it is important to try different foods and that different foods give us different things. That's just a fact. You know, it's, you know, fruit gives you this and grains give you this and protein gives you this. And and we need all of these foods that work together to give our bodies what they need. To me, that is not a diet culture message. That's just, you know, equipping kids with knowledge about, you know, what they're eating and, and why I'm serving what I'm serving. So I think it's fine. I think it took me also a while to realize that, well, first of all, my kids are really slow eaters. I'm a fast eater. I think I probably learned that. Uh, but at this point in, in their life, they're really slow eaters and they don't get that much time to eat. So when my kids, you know, yeah, so they do tend to pick the uncrustable and the, I don't know, strawberries, which is fine. I, I can't think of anything else that they would pack or like the high sugar yogurt that they like to pack in their lunch. It's fine over the, you know, sliced carrots or sliced mm-hmm. bell peppers because they just don't have time to eat that other stuff. And that's, that's okay. True. You know? Yeah. So and you can remember you can, that. Yeah. And you can serve those foods at after school snack or something. You know, like if your kid just is not going to eat very much. And I know some, you know, especially really, really um, selective eaters may may have like a couple of safe foods that they feel comfortable eating at lunch. That's okay. Like when they come home, you know, focus on those foods at other times of the day. And and that's all right. I think balance and structure is kind of what you're getting. I think of that applying to like screen time, sleep schedules. Yeah. Kids do well with balance and structure. Yeah, that's so true. I guess food is is part of that with a mm-hmm. spectrum, you know, not getting into a diet culture message, but but still providing some some boundaries and and guidance. I love that. So like, can you talk to us about your e-course and tell us what it's all about and how can it help our listeners? Sure. I have um, a free email course. Um, I believe it's six weeks. It's a picky eater problem solver and um, it's totally free. And basically every week you get sort of a new strategy delivered to your inbox with uh, links to recipes and recommended books and um articles and sort of homework for each week. So it's a lot of the things that I talked about here and more. So for instance, one week might be looking at snacks or one week might be looking at desserts. And are you, are you bribing with desserts? Are you using, you know, desserts as, um, as leverage? And just sort of, you know, in the next week, here's how, you know, to sort of change this behavior or change up what you do, try these things. And um, I've had thousands of people go through it and, and tell me that it really, it really helped them um, think about things differently, approach things differently. So I can absolutely give you guys a link um, for people to sign up for that. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So Sally, we like to end each of our episodes with what we call a mom win. It ends up typically being a favorite new recipe or product. So we want to end with your top three favorite simple dinner recipes or products that you can tell us about now, and then we'll put a link in our show notes. Sure. So, okay. My kid's favorite meal, which is not like you know, no one would ever call it health food, but it is um, spaghetti carbonara, which I have that recipe on my site. It is like the hands down, like if, you know, if I have been serving some meals that haven't gone over very well, okay, I serve spaghetti carbonara and everyone's like, oh, like they love it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so that, um, that's my kid's favorite. Um, I'd say turkey tacos are one of my favorites to make. They're so easy. I've heard from so many of my readers that it's like one of their family's favorite meals. So super easy. You can actually make the filling and freeze the filling. 
and then just pull it out, defrost it, put it in in some shells and bake it. Um, I love that recipe. And then I've been making a sheet pan. It's not my recipe, but it's a sheet pan, like a sausage with all kinds of vegetables. And there's like Mm. a garlicky um, olive oil type sauce over it. And it's so good because, you know, it's like sweet potatoes and broccoli. And then I throw in like whatever vegetables are in the vegetable drawer that I need to get rid of, like green beans and Brussels sprouts and whatever. It's so colorful and beautiful. And for some reason, it's just like my kids just take big helpings of it and whatever vegetables are in there, they eat. And I think, you know, you put a delicious sauce on it, you put some, um, you know, some savory sausage in there. And for some reason, it's just a great vehicle for them to get lots of um, colorful vegetables and just all kinds of different vegetables in them. And it's so easy with the one pan, the sheet pan. It's just like genius. Whoever came up with that. (laughs) Genius. Those are the best recipes. One pot or one pan. Yes. Yes. Minimal cleanup. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Sally. I think we've waited way too long to have you on, uh, but we are so glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. What about mom wins or new favorite products? Nicole, what do you got? Did I tell you the, maybe I just blogged about it. There was, we had all these bananas on our counter that were looking ready for banana bread. And and Mark, like amid a busy week was like, you should make banana bread. And I was like, you should make banana bread. Like, why is this my, like, (laughs) right. I don't know if I blogged about this or talked about it on the show. So, um, his mom was here last weekend so we could go to the Michigan state game, uh, Michigan, Illinois game. And uh, she baked banana bread or banana muffins when she was at our house. And I came, we came back and we're just laughing about it. It was it was pretty cute. And then he's like, there's still a lot of bananas. What are you going to do? And I was like, you little turd, I'm going to make more banana muffins. So I looked up a, a recipe that was completely different from the one my mother-in-law made. And I got to say, Gina, these banana nut muffins, they're called the best ever. They actually are like the best ever banana nut muffins. Mark said so. The kids said so. Um, so we've been eating all the banana muffins in our house, um, the the healthier version and, and the, the less healthier version. But these ones are just well worth making. So I'm okay. going to link those in the show notes. They are w- awesome. What's the difference between the healthier version and then the less healthy? Just more sugar or what? I would say the sugar is definitely there. And then the the less healthy version has like a crumble on top. So you mix just a bit of butter and brown sugar with walnut, chopped walnuts and you sprinkle those on top before baking. Oh, it like gets this like crystallization crunch on top. Oh man, they're good. The Mylard reaction. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yay, chemistry. I still Thank don't know you. if I'm saying that right. I feel like Mylard. someone pointed out that I wasn't saying it right. Maylard, Mylard. Mylard. I'll never, I'll never remember it. Yeah. Well, hey, at least we recognize it. Exactly. Yes. We know what it is, right? Okay. So think again, I am definitely someone who looks far in advance in the future. I am so excited about spring and summer this year. I think because last year we had such a terrible summer. I'm like, this is going to be the summer of all summers. I'm already looking at things like bathing suits. I'm just so excited about getting rid of winter. So I went to Amazon and I bought about four bathing suits. Okay, of Nicole. I, is that what you do? Oh, I bought like 30 and then I returned the bulk of them. But Well, that's what I, that was the goal. So I'm like, okay, here, I found four that I think look cute. I'm going to try them on and see what happens. My, I was envisioning keeping just two, uh, which I actually ended up just keeping two. However, so I, I already have plenty of bathing suits. I'm just like, I don't even know why I'm buying two more, but you know what? I think it's good to get a new bathing suit or two each year. And the ones on Amazon are really not that expensive. I mean, they're 
I think that the the most expensive one was $30. So there's no no reason not to check out Amazon. Okay, so I had a little, um, I don't know, fashion show of sorts for, for Paige. I said, Paige, come upstairs and tell me which ones I should keep. And she just loved that I asked her to do that. And I put on one of the suits. Now they're both, they're all two pieces, but Nick said that he wanted me to get a two piece with the high waist because that's what all the, he, he just likes that look. And oh, see, no, and Mark I don't. hates it. Oh, that's funny. Huh. I don't always dress based on what Nick tells me to dress as, but I, I actually do like that look as well. So I thought, okay. And I do like the idea of a two piece that kind of comes up a little bit higher. I'm not going to lie. So I got all that style, two pieces with the high waist and Paige on one of them pointed out that I had, you know, extra skin and she kind of grabbed my love handles coming out on the top of the high waist uh, bottoms. And let me tell you, it kind of threw me off a little bit. I was not at all offended. Obviously, I could really care less. They're very, very normal to have those. But I didn't really know how to react to it. And so I don't know if what I did was right, but I just told her, I said, oh, yeah, these, everyone has these and they're completely normal and I love them. And I just kind of started doing a little dance in my two piece and just made her laugh. So didn't make a whole big, big deal about it, but just let her see that it's A, normal uh, and that B, I have no issue with it whatsoever. And in fact, I'm embracing it. And actually, I ended up keeping that suit. So her comment did not deter me from keeping that bathing suit. But I just thought it was, you know, she didn't point it out as, she didn't say, oh, look at this fat or look at this. What she said was purely an observation. I don't think it was something that she'd learned or seen in a TV show. I think it was just purely something that she observed and it looked off to her. Uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was interesting to hear her say that. And hopefully my response will resonate with her in the future when she notices that on her own body. Interesting. My kids have yeah. definitely grown up seeing a lot of extra. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, they're very accustomed to seeing my, my fluffy body. That's interesting. I don't know that they've <laughs> ever said anything about it. But. Yeah. Well, when it's normalized, I yeah. guess that's, they're not going to say anything, but that's cute. I love that I you don't, said I love them and you danced around and, and just embraced the normalcy of it. So I'm actually, now that you mentioned that, I'm trying to think why Paige has never noticed this before, but I do think actually in the higher waist. So I, I, where I have extra fluff is when, when you, you notice it more when I put the higher waist bottoms on, uh, because when I wear the, the ones that kind of hug down a little bit lower. I, I don't have extra skin there. But when you, like when I, if I pull up my pants, you'll notice that more. So I'm, I'm trying to think that's probably why she'd never noticed it before because in these particular higher waist bottoms, yeah, you, you do notice that more on me at least. Maybe not everyone, but I for me, you would notice it more on the higher waist. So that's probably why she'd never noticed that before. I've never put on higher waist underwear or a bathing suit that's a two-piece in front of her would I guess expose that so yeah I don't I don't know so I'm glad that she got to see that and we got to have a you know a, a fun little not conversation but I love that just a, a good response hopefully to, to that all right so coming up on March 13th we will be dishing about again five random things because you all liked that episode so much that we did a few a few months ago so until then keep in touch with us on social media at dietitians dish podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, 
Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. And if you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right, everyone. Until next time, be well. And Nicole, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.